Super Talk Mississippi media production. Find your new ride at Kia McCombs all-new location at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Come find out why McComb loves Kia McComb at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Right on the corner, right on the price. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studio, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music as we kick off a brand new week here in the middle of July. There, Rhino. Oh yeah. So last week we reported that uh, media, at least some media announced, was sharing stories that we had passed through the hottest day on record. Will you please provide the context for that? They got it wrong just a little bit. Yeah, there's there's an important little facet to that factoid, and that is it it has been the hottest day on record since 1979. (laughs) Well, so... They were all freaking out. Oh, yeah, course. some of them going full hyperbole with hottest day in human history. And it's like, <laughs> it hadn't even been the hottest day in the century sometimes. <laughs> oh, I mean, there were, gosh. There were parts of the Mid-South that were experiencing record low maximum highs over the weekend. But, yeah, it's the hottest day across the world. <laughs> an average of 62.9 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> well... Why are they called out on it? I think that's what bugs me about it is, you know... Because this, the only people that really care to call them out on it have, have been ignoring them for years. Okay. Well, when we, we've we got all the teeth gnashing and the hand wringing over the court's decision that, eh, you know what, the government's getting a little too cozy here. With big tech, social media companies, we've learned that. It's just glaringly obvious that government was influencing content, certainly during the COVID pandemic, dictating to them what they should and will allow. And it was even some cases where the social media companies were like running it by government. Hey, is this okay if we let this go, this content, this explanation? And But when he got something like this, where the mainstream media just goes crazy over it, well, where's government then? Hey, guys, you got that wrong. Don't be telling people that. Where, where is the, the censoring apparatus 
Oh, because they actually like that misinformation. Feels like fact-checking only really goes one way. <sighs> sure does. Well, the uh, the markets, the Dow is up 105 points. The NASDAQ down a bit. And what's going on this week, folks, is we're expecting Wednesday, the latest inflation data. And stocks are kind of mixed ahead of those announcements. And, of course, we've also I got a slew of earnings reports due this, this week as well. So lots of financial information. Meanwhile, the president continues to tout his Bidenomics. He once again did so over the weekend, and he, he, in every single speech, once again, I caught this, I think yesterday he was speaking. Unusual a bit. It was in the middle of the day, the afternoon. And he talks about how he reduced the deficit. The same old long-in-the-tooth lie. We just got to call it out. It's the Washington Post scored it as a bottomless Pinocchio. They're fact-checkers. What's even more amazing is that he's focused on the first two years of his term and the impact on the deficit. But yet, we are presently in the throes of year three from a fiscal year perspective, just having passed the mid-year mark. Uh, A little bit past the mid-year mark, we got, what, three months left. So we're past the three-quarter mark, actually, in in the federal government's fiscal year, which ends September 30th. But we're on track, a run rate, to produce a $2 trillion deficit which is going to be an increase of nearly $1.5 trillion over last year. So when he goes to the public and says, I reduced the deficit by $1.7 trillion, referring to the first two years, what he's not telling and sharing with the American people is that, uh, yeah, but see, the deficit is about to rise under my watch by some $1.5 trillion, and of course never shares the the context that, well, that's just because we didn't spend all that one-time COVID money, never provides that as part of the explanation. I dwell on that because it frustrates me, because it, what really frustrates me about it is how many people believe that stuff and see it as, oh, this guy's a genius, man. Look how much more fiscally responsible he is than these Republicans, because he reduced the deficit. Go, Joe! And he sent me all this money out of helicopters to boot. And, of course, he once again spewed all the the untruths about the manufacturing sector. I still maintain he's totally focused on that, never even discusses other aspects of the economy certainly from an an industrial perspective. And what little manufacturing on on an after-inflation basis increase in spending we've seen is a direct result of printed dollars from the Treasury that just lapped onto the debt that were just transferred to companies in the 
in the chips industry, for example. And all this all these investments we're seeing in green manufacturing, that's a direct result of massive subsidies and tax credits that only target that industry or only available to that industry from the Inflation Reduction Act. What the heck that has to do with inflation is just beats me. But the same guy who denounces, derides, decries government transfer, government funding to certain industries, such as the fossil fuels industry, which does receive some degree of of tax benefit from certain investments. We can't do that. We gotta just we gotta just trash that industry. But oh, when we're giving it to electric battery manufacturing plants, well that's fine. That's okay. That's different. Because see that's in alignment with the agenda. It's just such a double standard. But yet, it's also more evidence of what I've been saying, that he's using a really old political playbook that's not quite up to date. Yeah. Because, I mean, he's been in politics since when? Since manufacturing made up a quarter of all jobs? Right. now it's lucky if it makes up a tenth? Yeah, I think it's about 6% total. And it's uh, total focus on that, totally out of touch. And this idea that, hey, the the path to prosperity is through the manufacturing industry is just horse hockey. It's not true. Now, that's not to say we don't have to make stuff. We do. But the making stuff segment of our economy has been shrinking as a percentage of the economy because so many other areas, so many other industries – have blossomed, have grown, mainly the result of the, the the rise of digitization and digital technologies. That, that is that has uh, absolutely served as a catalyst for growth in so many areas of our economy. And he never talks about that. Always focuses on manufacturing, and I think that's pandering to unions. Still, probably the industry will you're where you'll find most unionization. I would say, but it's uh, it gets a little old, in my view, when he just continues to focus on that. So, Rhino, it's my understanding that we have a chance to see the northern lights in parts of America. The yeah, Amor- I don't think it'll make it quite as far south as the Magnolia State. Won't see it here, but uh, we'll dig into that a little bit. We also are inside a month, are we not? For the primary elections here in Mississippi, Terry Rogers, Democrat candidate for Mississippi's Agriculture Commissioner, is on the program at 1037. And then Alyssa Johnson, Director of Advocacy and Campaigns for Criminal Justice Reform at FWD.US at 1105. Stay with us. We're in the Element Wealth Studio. Back to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi.
Welcome back, everyone. It's midday, Super Talk Mississippi. Larry and Mize reminds that, I believe, tonight, right? Monday? Tonight? 7 o'clock at the Raleigh Courthouse, Raleigh, Mississippi Courthouse. The uh, Republicans there are featuring Dr. John Witcher, who is a Republican candidate for governor. Also, Delbert Hoseman, lieutenant governor. Both candidates for a state senator. This would be at the Smith County Republican Party meeting. That's this evening at 7 o'clock at the Raleigh Courthouse. Larry says everyone is welcome to come. There you go. Appreciate you reminding me of that, uh, Larry. And you guys have a good event tonight. Will there be refreshments? That's a good question. Larry, you'll have to tell us. What's a party without refreshments? <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, I think I've shared before that the Boston Globe of all the newspapers that I digest on a on a virtual daily basis is by far the most left-leaning. And there's a column that comes out usually once a week. And it's, uh, it's an opinion writer that works for the Boston Globe that produces this column. It's called Fast Forward, the news you need for the day ahead. But it doesn't come out every day. So last Friday shared a piece on student loan debt forgiveness. And, of course, this individual, as you can imagine, being a far-left opinion editor for the Boston Globe, says, why should the federal government forgive student loan debt? Because it's the right thing to do for our residents, for the economy, and for the country as a whole. After the Supreme Court killed Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness program last week, I heard from a handful of fast-forward readers asking questions. Why should taxpayers foot the bill? Why should these students get some of their debt wiped out when millions of people before them paid theirs off? And why didn't they just go to cheaper colleges? And it goes on to so-called debunk the lie what what uh, this writer says is a lie. says, it's too bad the loan forgiveness program was killed. Many of these folks, relieved of that debt, would have helped give the, the already robust economy, already robust economy, a boost. They'd been able to, they would have been able to buy houses, pay down debt, other debt, start businesses, rely less on other social services programs. Well, that's kind of an interesting thought. And, and then the question about why should today's students get their debt relief when yesterday's students didn't is a question that could be asked about any social program. says, this is really just not American. Why do you go to expensive schools? Because the bigger the reputation of the college, the better it looks on a resume. Blah, blah, blah. The typical student who has defaulted on those loans have... Uh, never graduated and owes a little less than ten thousand. Their incomes come in at less than a hundred thousand. 
Forty thousand. Pardon. 40, well, yeah, how does that square up? Yeah, forty thousand. If, if the majority of them owe ten thousand dollars or less, how is that going to help them buy a house? It's, it doesn't. It's crazy. I mean, it may help and as a down payment, but more than likely, you you may have the available cash to to foot the down payment, but you can't pay the mortgage. I would say, if you can't pay your student debt, you can't pay a mortgage, especially if it's at ten thousand. Right. Yeah, that's not going to help you pay your mortgage. Can't buy a house for ten grand. Again, it may, it may, uh, I guess, aid some people in that they would have the necessary cash, liquid uh, money, to make the down payment. But uh, man, so many of these people would qualify for loans where there's no down payment required. So. Oh, it just goes on and on. Education creates good citizens. It helps people recognize the lies of demagogues of every stripe, especially Orange taking a shot, of course, at Trump, which this writer always takes shot at Trump. Every time she writes. Increases household income, providing financial security and a stable home life. Uh, I mean, if that's the case, then just send everybody money. We already did that, right? What did we get for that? 9% 9% inflation. Now, I'll grant you, it's down to 45 to 5 now, but it still caused pain, and it caused prices to go up that ain't ever going down again. And, of course, Biden's out there touting his Bidenomics results, and he never mentions the fact that he talks about, okay, we've halved inflation from a year ago. That's true. But, in terms of real disposable income, what are described as real wages, he, he likes to brag about, we got wages up 4%. Yeah, but inflation's 5 so you're upside down. He never mentions that fact. Great, you're making more money. Stuff costs more. More than your pay increase. Therefore, you're upside down. You haven't benefited. And, and so he's running around promoting his economic plan and vision, but yet poll after poll shows that 60-70% overwhelming numbers of Americans are not happy with the current situation economically and think it's on the wrong track. And he continues to boast about it. It's just amazing how we can look at this student loan situation and have such diametrically opposed positions on it. And what I will say, you know, just to to be devil's advocate a little bit, is that the notion that why should I have to pay for somebody else's loan, I, I get the frustration of that. But the reality is the government, the Treasury, is not going to send you a bill. Your taxes aren't going to increase to cover it. What it essentially does is just adds to our debt. And so... Without actually doing anything about what caused the problem to begin with. Still not addressing the core issue. That's right. And I still wonder why these universities with these gigantic multi-billion dollar endowments, why don't they kick in? Why don't they feel just the slightest bit responsible for taking the money of these students and, and then graduating them in some worthless course of study 
such that they can't even pay the debt, can't get su- sufficient employment to produce the income necessary to live and cover the debt, the indebtedness to achieve whatever that academic accomplishment was. They're the ones that ought to be held to account, in my view. But They're the ones who started jacking up the price of tuition pretty much the exact second the federal government got involved in providing student loans. And then counseling people on how to work the system to get every possible dime of money so they can write them a check. <laughs> it's crazy if you think about it. Let me help you get that money to pay me. You don't have to do it yourself. The taxpayers will handle that. But what is true is that though you're not going to get a bill for the government, for somebody, for your neighbor's student loan, and you're not going to incur a tax increase. So that's that's a bit of a mischaracterization. The taxpayers shouldn't have to foot the bill for that. What is true, however, is that when we're fabricating dollars, so-called printing money, to cover these expenditures, such as writing off $500 billion of student loan debt, no question that has an inflationary impact. And that is a tax, so to speak. It's indirect. It's not. It doesn't show up on your 1040 that you send to the IRS, but it does affect. All you have to do is reflect on something that we hadn't even talked about in a decade, and that's inflation. Well, that all took hold and began to root right after Joe Biden got elected. About six months into it, we started seeing little creeping inflation and all the smart folks, including transitory. transitory. And, of course, now they're looking back and saying, you know, we screwed up on that deal. No, they're not saying that out loud. Well, not out loud. You're right. But they're not returning to even referencing that period a short two years ago. We've got Terry Rogers, candidate for Mississippi Agriculture Commissioner, coming on the program next. Stay tuned. Listening to Middays with Gerard, Gerard Gibbert, here on Super Talk, Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Midday Super Talk Mississippi in the Element Wealth Studio, kicking off a brand new week. Joining us now, Terry Rogers, Democrat candidate for a Mississippi Agriculture Commissioner. Good morning, uh, Terry. Thanks for joining us on Middays. Check your mic. Are you muted? I'm sorry. Good morning, Gerard. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. So tell us uh, what motivated you to jump in the race for agriculture commissioner. 
Oh, well, you know, I go to a school called Jones College uh, down in Ellisville, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And, uh, y- you know, I, there was a uh, convention or, or something. I, I, I don't really know why all the farmers were there. Um, but there were several farmers there, and some come from my own home county, and some come from Jasper County and Jones. You know, just the local area farms were there for some unique reason. And uh, they were telling me about some of the uh, indifferences they were coming with, and, and they were telling me, you know, how the current agriculture commissioner, you know, wasn't uh, uh, being as vocal as they want them want, want him to be and uh, wasn't um, – how, how how can I put it? Wasn't sticking his neck on the line like they want him to be, and uh, they said you ought to run. And I said I won't run because uh, you told me to. I run because God told me to. Hmm. And um, ever since then I've been running. So the Lord, so I truly do believe God has told me to run. Um, so whenever God calls you to do something, I believe you should do it. Gotcha. For the benefit of our audience, what exactly? Uh, is the role, what are the responsibilities of the Agriculture Commissioner of Mississippi? Well, well, he's Commissioner of Agriculture and Commerce in the state of Mississippi. His job is to, you know, o- oversee uh, our 34,700 farms will equal $10 billion in revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and really to, his main job is to produce Mississippi goods. Uh, you know, that's why he's over at the, you know, the Coliseum, the fairgrounds. Um, you know, you see his see his name, the sticker on the uh, uh, on the gas pumps. Uh, really, he's he's called there to promote Mississippi goods and make sure you know our agriculture li- life is continue uh, to blossom and boom. Yes, it's uh, really more of a regulatory agency regulates, of course, uh, agriculture yeah. and some other uh, business aspects of our economy. What what uh, would you like to see happen? What would be your priorities should you be elected agriculture commissioner? Uh, well, re- really to go up and, you know, fight for our, you know, especially our poultry farms and some of our catfish farms up in Washington, because, you know, those those two are some of the, some of the people who are coming with me uh, with the most problems saying they're being uh, 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 somewhat neglected or, or some such, or some sort, excuse me, mm-hmm. um, especially with things like climate change. And then, you know, you got some of our, you know, row producers, you know, some of, some people who produce crops. Uh, they say soil erosion and things of that nature is a big thing as well as climate change. Um, and they're saying they're not getting a lot of grant money that they used to, which is understandable because of how inflation is going and things of that nature. I heard you all talking about, about that earlier on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I really want to fight for our Mississippi farms to get grant. I want to bring community gardens into each and every community in the state of Mississippi because we are a agricultural state. Uh, it employs, I believe, about 17.4% of our workforce. Um, that's a pretty big number considering, you know, everybody in the state of Mississippi. So over one-tenth of every Mississippian works in agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, well, works, you know, indirectly or directly uh, due to agriculture. And so I, I, I want to bring community gardens in there because I spoke to a woman in Tallahatchie County. She told me she has to go 55 miles to the nearest grocery store with gas being $55 a gallon. And it seems like we're paying $55 for a dozen eggs. Now, uh, Mr. Gerard, I grew up with a silver spoon in my mouth. I can't lie. But the only reason I grew up with a silver spoon in my mouth is because my mother and father spray painted that plastic spoon silver. So I understand exactly where they're coming from in some of these issues. 
Um, and, 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 you know, I'm running, you know, on the Democratic Party, but there is no Democratic fruit. There is no Republican fruit. I believe in a Mississippi, uh, or one Mississippi. I don't believe in a Republican Mississippi or a Democrat Mississippi. I believe in one Mississippi. And so I'm going to fight for, uh, fight for Mississippians. That's why I'm proud to say that, uh, I visited all 82 counties. And one of the main things that people enjoy from me is me saying, I'm, I want to, I'm going to get rid of the 7%. Uh, grocery tax, which is the highest grocery tax for the poorest state in the United States. Um, it's just, just not right. We can find loopholes around if we were go up about 1.5% on the sales tax. We could eliminate it, but it's just the fact that we have to, uh, have, uh, a bipartisan, well, not really even a bipartisanship because we have a super red majority here in the state of Mississippi and, uh, you know, Chris McDaniel and I believe Delbert Hoseman have all came out and supported, you know, eliminating the 7% grocery tax. After that, my article came out on Clarion Ledger, uh, Andy Gibson even, you know, uh, spoke out against the 7% grocery tax. So Republicans and Democrats are standing firm up against this. I believe if, you know, a, a special session or something we'll call right now by Tate Reeves, I believe uh, if everybody, if, if both sides could sit down and, 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 and talk and, you know, negotiate, I believe we could get rid of it. Uh, and I also want to work with the Department of Education to, uh, bring future farmers of America into each and every, uh, school in the state of Mississippi and see how we can lend our hand out because, you know, our kids, some, some, a lot of our kids don't even know how to, you know, make their own beds. You know, but if they, we, a lot of us smell chicken poop, but, uh, th- those manufacturers are making, are, sm- are smelling money. So uh, if our kids could understand and tap into some of that uh, $10 billion in revenue in which we're making, I truly do believe uh, we won't have our labor shortages that we have right now. Um, you know, some of my farmers are getting killed. I tell the story a lot. I know I'm going on and on, Mr. Roy. No, please. But, uh, but, but, but I tell the story. I recently found out that uh, it was a basketball team with seven players on it. Um, somebody, went, somebody came up and told me that, Five out of those seven people, including me, uh, uh, five, five out of those people who I played with were murdered. One's in jail for murder. And you're looking at the sole person who's alive and not in prison. Uh, so I truly do believe if they knew about other things or, 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 or you know, if they could have just seen a, a different path or, or seen a different, um, area aspect of things that change would have actually came, um, and a lot of them probably would have still been alive today. Um, so, <laughs> hmm, interesting. So, uh, yeah. w- would you you feel comfortable working with the legislature? As you know, that uh, the Department of Agriculture and Commerce is responsible for uh, regulation and just promotion of policies that help farmers and related industries, and, and much of that does come down is handed down by the legislature, such as the the grocery sales tax, for example, that's something that would have to be enacted by the legislature or passed by the legislature, enacted right. by the governor. Do, do you uh, are you comfortable with that? Working directly with members of the legislature uh, to represent the needs of uh, the farming and rela- uh, farmers and related businesses. Correct. Uh, I believe in e pluribus unum. Out of many, we are one. So out of many agencies, I believe we are one. We're all serving the same state. Where I mean, we may have all come from different places. We may have just like you know, we've all came over on different ships, but we're all in the same boat. Um, 
so so I, I don't have no problem working with uh, a, a, a Republican, a Democrat, independent. I don't even care if we elect a Libertarian or somebody a part of the Green Party. I work with them to to help Mississippians get what Mississippians deserve. Um, and I truly do believe that uh, we, whenever I sit down and talk with uh, Mississippi legislator, we all come to common ground. Uh, we may disagree on on some things. We may disagree on a lot of things. But at the end of the day, um, it's nothing personal. It's just we're trying to put the best things out for our state. Um, we, you know, sometimes I always might not see eye to eye because some people have their own opinion, just like I'm going to have my own opinion. Um but at the end of the day, we're all here for one reason, and that's to help make Mississippi better and blossom. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that uh, in your discussions with farmers, they're, they're talking about uh, grant availability and, and climate change regulation, mm-hmm. et, cetera, et cetera. Anything else you're hearing from the farmers? You also said, uh, impressively, you visited all 82 counties, and of course, as you know, we have farmers in maybe every county, certainly a, a good number of them. Yeah. And I know that's who you're interacting with. With uh, What are they telling you? What do they need? Uh, they, 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 they really want somebody who, um, who, who can actually come and talk to them. You know, I, I understand that, you know, Many statewide officials go, oh, well, we're going on these 82 county uh, tours. Yeah. I've been 82 counties, but I want to keep going to keep going to them, you know, keep on talking to them. And they, they say in their need somebody to actually come and speak to them and actually go up to Washington and fight for them. OK. And go up to Jackson because Jackson's a mess as well as Washington. Yeah. Well, Terry, we appreciate you coming on the program and, and good luck in the campaign. Yes, sir. Thank you. And vote Terry Rogers the second on August 8th. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well Studio. You're listening to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone it's middays so appreciate uh, Terry Rogers coming on the program good luck to him and all the candidates as we approach the uh, Republican primary coming up here in August we're inside a month of that by the way this week we're happy to say that we will air the 11th annual Palmer Home for Children Radiothon that's Thursday on Super Talk Mississippi every year 
There are children across Mississippi that need a loving home, and many times these children are caught in unimaginable circumstances. That's why we need your help. You'll learn how Palmer Home for Children serves vulnerable children. It's a faith-based organization that doesn't take government money, so we definitely need your help. We're going to be there Thursday, like all day, right? That's why it's called the Radiothon. We'll be on site at the Palmer Home. Looking forward to that. And then right around the corner, it's the old Neshoba County Fair. All the candidates will address the crowds in attendance under the big pavilion there. Maybe one of the greatest venues in America for political speaking. And as soon as they're done, typically, they head right on over to Middays. We'll be set up just off of Founders Square, on Founders Square, just adjacent to the pavilion under the iconic Super Talk Mississippi tent. And my understanding is, Scary Gary's going to have me a fan or two set up <laughs> to at least try to mitigate the heat. But that's I like that better than the rain because it just turns it into kind of a muddy muck when that happens. But we're Although be a there. little bit of rain's nice because it knocks the dust down. That's true. You're good. Good point there. Uh, legendary Fed Chair, Chairman of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan. He's legendary because um, he presided over the economy uh, during a time when we were trying to fight this sticky inflation. And he says that that underwear, men's underwear, can be an economic indicator. You ever heard that before? That's kind of weird, isn't it? Maybe not an economic indicator, but there is the stereotype. I guess you would consider undershirts to be underwear. Yeah, it could be. And the A shirt has the uh, notorious nickname of the wife beater. <laughs> That's true. Um, I, I, I'm trying to remember his name from Saturday Night Live. Uh, gosh, we talked about him before. That whose wife killed him? Is that right? What was the scenario there? Fantastic comic actor in the program. But there was a... There, there was a uh, skit. He was wearing the wife beater, and and I think it was Jan Hooks. Was uh, Phil Hartman? Phil Hartman. Thank you. Yes, Phil Hartman. He was fantastic. Jan Hooks was playing like a prostitute or something to that effect. They were in a hotel, and he was he had his wife beater shirt on. It was classic. But the men's underwear index that is an economic index that can supposedly, at least, detect the beginnings of a recovery during an economic slump. And the, the whole idea is that men's underwear are a necessity in normal economic times, and sales are fairly stable. In a downturn, men don't buy as much underwear. And it's thought that it's because it's hidden. So it's a little different than your your outside layer of clothing that everyone sees. You're going to try to keep that, I guess, somewhat fresh, neat, in order, stylish, current, maybe. But 
you'll sort of make that underwear last a little longer because nobody can see it. It's a true story. And and Alan Greenspan is the first to really start analyzing this. You know, there's also something known as the Big Mac Index <laughs> as well. Um, that's been around, I think, since 1986, the mid-'80s. And that's an indicator of the purchasing power. They call it purchasing power parity. Interesting, especially between the exchange rates of the U.S. and the U.K., because you got the same product being sold in both nations. So they call it the Big Mac Index. Phil Hartman, yes, somebody told us that. I couldn't remember his name. Unbelievable. Uh, remind me of some bubble-headed beauty contest <laughs> contestants. <laughs> Uh, Jan Hooks, remember, she. Uh, they also had a skit where she was a beauty contestant. And I just remember her saying, I love everybody, but first I love myself, and you can't love everybody unless you love yourself or something crazy like that. We're taking a break right here for Super Talk News and Fox News. That's uh, because it's top of the hour. When we return, it's Alyssa Johnson, Director of Advocacy and Campaigns, Criminal justice reform at fwd.us. Stay with us. And now, now. the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. back, everyone. Hour two of Midday Super Talk Mississippi, live from the Element Wealth Studio. Don't forget Ricky Matthews, Super Talk Outdoors, coming up at 12 o'clock today because it is Mondays. But joining us now, Alyssa Johnson, criminal justice reform with FWD.us. Alyssa, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Gerard. So I read uh, the report that your organization produced about uh, the state of Mississippi uh, as it pertains to incarceration rates and and just how um, what appears to be excess prison population, mainly uh, brought on by long sentencing, is, is actually harming our economy, or certainly there could be opportunities to boost our economy, maybe if we implemented some of these reforms that your organization advocates for. Did I present that correctly? And please talk about that. Absolutely, Gerard. And yes, you did. I think what we're talking about in this report is really an opportunity um, for expansion of the workforce. We know that small businesses are talking about a workforce shortage. And how do we, how do we fix that? And so we know that incarceration is one of the most expensive and least effective ways um, to advance public safety. And so what we're suggesting here is that there's opportunities to build on the success Mississippi has had. Yeah. So what what policies are, are you looking for specifically? What would you, and this would have to come from our legislature, what do you want to see the legislature pass 
to reform uh, just some of our prison sentences and just overall corrections policies? I would say, Gerard, it's it's kind of a two-part, and I think that we mentioned in the report, because there's a whole section on the steps that have already been taken. Mm -hmm. And so in 2021, the legislature passed parole reform. That was an important step to give people an opportunity to demonstrate rehabilitation, to go home, rejoin the workforce. And so what we're we're looking at here is opportunities to build on that success. Okay. But shortening sentences for some offenses... For, yeah. For as example, Gerard in Mississippi, people are sentenced for drug possession thirty four percent longer than the national average. Hmm. So, is there an opportunity to reduce those sentences um, in order to put people back to work, make sure they have the treatment they need? Yeah, and I know that's and a, also that, are contributing to the economy. That, yeah. And that's a common comparison that is presented statistically: is that the state of Mississippi has an overly high rate of incarceration relative to the rest uh, of the country, Uh, maybe the highest, if I'm not mistaken, on a per capita basis. And that's typically pointed to as uh, as needing some reform, as just evidence that reforms are needed. Um, And then, of course, there's the cost associated with uh, incarceration. It's quite expensive as well. And, And then I think the other points are, when uh, when when people are put away to prison and they spend a long period of time there, even for uh, nonviolent offenses, when they're finally released, they've just fallen so far behind as being able to go out and uh, land meaningful, productive work. Absolutely, and I just just to add on to that, I think we've been looking at the fact that people who have been incarcerated can be just as good of employees. There was a national survey that was done of business leaders and HR professionals, um, and the over 80% in both groups found that people have criminal convictions who have been incarcerated are just as good, if not better, employees. And so there is an opportunity that you have most people that are incarcerated are coming home. Yeah. And employment is a way to ensure that we are reducing recidivism and continuing to prioritize public safety, which is the thing we all want. The the other concern I guess I've had, uh, Alyssa, uh, around this issue is that when we lock people up for these these drug crimes that uh, where there's no no violence committed, there's no theft involved, really just maybe it's just simple possession or or, or something uh, that is fairly uh, innocuous mm-hmm. and really only affects the person. We lock them up for an extended period of time, but we really don't effectively address the core problem, which is addiction to drugs. Absolutely. And that's what I think we're trying to say in this report is that there's an opportunity to continue to help support people, give meaningful second chances, making sure that we're addressing mental health and substance abuse, and also making sure that people are able to have the supports they need to get back to work um, and rejoin the workforce. We see Mississippi's low labor force participation rate as a real hindrance to the current businesses that are working to thrive and also continuing to attract new companies and businesses to the state. Yeah. And then we have the uh, the, the obstacle of licensing. This is something that is uh, a, a bit uh, of an albatross around Mississippi's neck is that we have this expansive licensing bureaucracy. And in many mm-hmm. cases, those licenses are not granted to people that have some sort of conviction 
of a crime on their record. And and so that keeps them out of the employment world. What do you think about that? Absolutely. And there's been some progress on that in the, in the past few years that right. we talk about in the report um, of, 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 you know, being able to look at that on a case by case basis. But you're exactly right. Those occupational licenses mean that people that have gotten training sometimes while they were incarcerated or beforehand can't return to the jobs where they have skills and their jobs where we need people. Um, whether it's welding or construction or barber, cosmetology, there's a whole range of fields in which we could welcome people back to the workforce in our communities and they could be making, you know, they could be making a living to take care of their families. Yeah. And something else that I saw in the report that was, I'll, I must admit, Alessa, was a bit shocking was the number of Mississippians that have a, a crime mm-hmm. on their record. 29% of adults. Is that correct? That's right. And I think when we talk about this issue, we really do think of it as something that impacts more people than I think than you think. Right. I think your surprise might be the way some a lot of people will feel. Um, But to say that there's a lot of stigma around it and what we really are looking at to say this is an issue that impacts us all. Right. It impacts the people in our communities that we go to church with, that we go to school with. And so kind of improving opportunities and prioritizing public safety helps all of us. Um, this isn't an issue that just impacts a few people. You know, it's over 600,000 people in the state. Yeah, it's it's a shocking, in my view, that that, that number, 660,000, have either a misdemeanor or felony conviction on their criminal record. Now, I would share with you, Alyssa, that a, a lot of folks have the concern, anytime you talk about criminal justice reform, the first thing that comes to their mind is what they're seeing on their television screens all the time and in the news media and some of the deep blue cities and, and states where criminals are, are, are just able to commit crimes with impunity. I saw this weekend that uh, there's a store in New York City that has gone to just locking everything up in these these glass containers, the plastic containers, clear plastic containers that require a worker of the store to unlock them so a person can buy them. They're even locking up spam, you know, $4 spam. And that's because you can't do anything about the crime. The criminals know they can steal whatever the heck they want, and and uh, they're, they're not going to be punished for it. So what do you tell people about the nuance here between – meaningful criminal justice reform and making sure that people who commit crimes uh, pay the price for it as a deterrent, if nothing else. No, I think that's that's a valid question. Absolutely. That's on the top of people's minds because we all want to feel safe in our communities. Um, And so I think what we look at here is the data and to say that 37 states that have reduced their imprisonment rates have seen crime drop three times as fast as those that didn't or saw an increase in imprisonment. Um, and also some of the low-level theft crimes that you mentioned, not that they're not important for accountability, but also a lot of those are quality of life crimes in terms of people that when we experience some of the economic instability, they, you know, again, just are looking for ways. And so how do we address the root causes? How do we ensure people know your access to resources related to food and housing, what's more educational training that we can make sure people have in their community to hopefully prevent crime, right? That public safety, like public safety is helped by hopefully making sure that we don't even have people entering the system. Yeah, I think the fear is, is that to, to some extent, to, to your point, we're rationalizing it, we're justifying it. 
we're sanctioning it, sanctioning it, and that uh, that's problematic for a lot of people. And so I think it's important that here in the state of Mississippi we make that distinction that that's really not the plan, that's not the intention, uh, but but yeah. rather it's I think it's more to address a lot of these drug crimes. Absolutely, and I think what we're saying here is that there's ways to have accountability but also to not incarcerate and use a strategy that doesn't make us safer. Makes sense. Um, and by doing and balancing those things, um, we can we can absolutely have a stronger workforce and economy and continue to have more people home um, and with their families. Appreciate you coming on, Alyssa, and talking about it. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Take care. Coming right back, folks, in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's go. You can join the conversation by sending us a text at 601-879-4395. That is the ceasefire text line. We're back with you in the Element Well studio. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. So even the USA Today, Rhino, had an, an, a feature article about Bidenomics entitled, Biden is trying to sell Bidenomics, but America's can't afford the president's agenda. The USA Today, no enclave of conservatism, mind you. And they, they shared... Uh, a video in the report where Biden is blasting trickle-down economics. Trickle-down. <laughs> Folks, that's the left's terminology to describe supply-side policies. If you're not familiar with that, that means less government involved in the economy. It means low taxes. It means reasonable Reasonable guarded regulation, not over-regulation. And what we have is just the opposite. We have a president who is just dying to raise taxes on you and whose deep state bureaucratic Byzantine agency complex just continues to push policies that just make you have to deal with less. You can't have as much water in your shower. It can't be as warm. You can't use gas stoves. you got to drive electric vehicles. You can't eat meat. You can't fly on airplanes. You can't have big sodas. What else? I'm sure there's some other crap they want to do. That's, that's the first kind of things that come to mind. It's just you got to deal with less. Get over it and like it. Use the paper <laughs> straw, even though it doesn't last but a half the drink. 
that's true. And less water in the flushing, and we're going to control your thermostats, and all that sort of stuff, right? You can choose between showering or washing your clothes. You will not be fully clean. <laughs> oh, you can't have gas-powered garden tools anymore as well, right? Can't do that. Oh, and no gosh. fire pizza stoves. <laughs> yeah, I forgot pizza about oven, that. Excuse me. <laughs> Ovens. <laughs> Even though it would take nearly a millennia of running all the pizza ovens in New York to equal one usage of John Kerry's jet. Uh, they hate fun. They hate convenience. They hate technological progress, unless it suits their agenda and empowers them. But he blasts Bidenomics. Says billionaires have just got to begin to pay their fair share. Zero about economic growth, except what he promotes is growth that comes from money he handed out, taxpayer money he handed out to the chip industry and these complex of bizarre credits and tax incentives for those who are in so-called green industries, you just wonder how many of those are going to go bankrupt, especially these startups like we saw Solyndra and others during the Obama era. And that's been a, a minute. So the USA Today says, I hate to break the news to the president, but he may need more than a catchy moniker to define the state of the U.S. economy. He, he's, of course, promoting Bidenomics to describe what he says are fabulous things his administration has done for the financial well-being of Americans. But most people ain't buying it. But I will give him this. He's talking about economic matters. And unfortunately, Republican candidates, they're not. They're not talking so much about the economy. They're more into the culture wars. In the case of Donald Trump, the frontrunner in the Republican field, he spends most of his talking points blasting Ron DeSanctis and DeSanctimonious and trying to come up with catchy names all the time. Now, by the way, have you seen he's reassigned <laughs> Crooked Hillary? <laughs> because of Joe Biden's crookedness. So now Joe is crooked Joe. You know what he calls Hillary? Beautiful Hillary. <laughs> that was this weekend. I think he was uh, in Iowa speaking. Beautiful Hillary. <laughs> crooked Joe Biden. So what is Bidenomics? Can somebody explain it to me? What's this crap about? We're going to build the economy from the bottom up and the middle out. What the heck does that mean? So the White House says that in response to what is Bidenomics, quote, the president took office determined to move beyond these failed trickle-down policies and fundamentally change the economic direction of our country. His plan, Bidenomics, is rooted in the recognition that the best way to grow the economy is from the middle out and the bottom up. What the heck does that mean? Will somebody please tell me how supply side, what the Democrats call trickle-down economics, please tell me how that failed. What failed about that? 
So what you're saying is, nope, we got to have more regulation, and you got to send more money to the government. That promotes economic growth. That's what they're saying. Because that would be the opposite of supply-side policy. It's incredible that he keeps focusing on that. Meanwhile, folks, we got elections coming up here in the Magnolia State. Things are starting to heat up a bit, certainly in the race for a lieutenant governor. I think most people would say in the Republican primary, that's the most contentious. One thing I noticed is a whole lot more ads on our air here. You notice that, Rhino? So folks want to get their message out. They know that our audience are politically engaged. They know they will vote, which, by the way, today, the last day, to register, correct? That's correct. So get on out there and do that, folks, if you haven't yet. Uh, But they're coming up, and it's the contrast between the candidates is certainly interesting. We have analyzed that to some extent, both candidates, and what they have said is their vision for the great state of Mississippi going forward. And I'm reminded of what Mr. Rogers, Democrat candidate for Ag Commissioner, said just a moment ago in our interview. And, you know, the first thing he talked about that he's hearing from farmers is grants. And this is nothing new. This has been going on for decades. Our government in Washington has always had a soft spot, honestly, for the farming industry, and, and you could argue that was the first industry in uh, our country when it was settled, because you had to eat. Fundamentally, can't live without that. And many of our founders, that was their occupation. It wasn't a whole lot other than that at the time, if you think about it. Yeah, there wasn't a Silicon Valley in <laughs> the late 1700s. So this deal about Grants, I mean, I appreciate that, and I and I. It, what's happened is it's incumbency again. It's that we've just become accustomed to that. Our, our farmers, I'm, I'm not being critical of them. I, I'm just pointing out that, hey, we're used to getting this money, grants, and uh, I, I don't know what's going on there. He he called attention to that. Is that he's hearing that from the farmers? I'm not sure specifically what, and and didn't feel like getting into that, that we'd end up going down the old rabbit hole there. Um, and then what else did he say? Climate change. And I honestly wasn't sure if he meant climate change is having a negative impact on their farming operations or if it's climate change policy that is affecting farmers. It's expensive that they're having to deal with. And I certainly understand that. Heck, you've seen this catastrophes occur in some other countries. The Netherlands comes to mind. What was the other one? Sri Lanka or something where, I mean, they're just all... They ran out of food. Yeah, just killed the whole dang agriculture industry. The Netherlands brought the farmers out protesting their government because they didn't want them to use fertilizer and the like, right? No fertilizer, no insecticides, no, no pesticides, no crop, or certainly much lower yields and much more cost to deal with that. 
It's just dumb, honestly. We're coming back with half an hour left on the program. Please stay with us. We're in the Element Well studio. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Bumping us into this segment here on Middays. We are in the Element Well studio. Short show, of course, on Mondays. Ricky Matthews, Super Talk Outdoors, coming up after the noon hour. And then we're back with you again tomorrow, Wednesday, up at the Palmer Home for Children on Thursday, back in the studio Friday. And then right around the corner, the old Neshoba County Fair. That would be in two weeks. Wednesday and Thursday, we'll be right there with all the action. Yes, CC and Sanatobia, I saw that as well, CC, that a trans female has won the Netherlands Miss Universe pageant. Of course. Is there any doubt if a trans entered that competition, that pageant, that they wouldn't just win it going away regardless? Of course. It's their opportunity to virtue signal, be transformational, make a change, right? Look at me. I was on the panel that that named the first trans the Miss Universe. Miss Universe would be Miss Universe Netherlands, I guess? Or is it Miss Netherlands Universe? I don't know. It's just Miss Netherlands. Miss Netherlands, okay. Because... No, that's right. That would that would be for the Miss Universe pageant, which covers the entire globe. Although we haven't had any Martians competing. <laughs> we need some Plutonians to come in <laughs> if it's really going to be Miss Universe. That's cool. It's like the joke about the World Series. It's like, well, they play baseball in other countries, but they never compete in the World Series. Yeah. Which is why the World Baseball Classic is such a big deal now. That is true. It's sort of an alternative because it includes teams from other nations. And it's usually nations. more entertaining than the World Series. I would agree with you on that. It is more entertaining. There could sometimes be a significant delta in the quality of the teams, though. Oh, yeah. No doubt about that. But that's really any international competition once it gets to a certain size. That's probably true. I mean, you look at the, the Soccer World Cup. It's going to be expanding... To the largest it's ever been when the U.S., Canada, and Mexico host it in 2026. And you'll probably see some pretty lopsided scores. But it gives the smaller countries and smaller teams with smaller budgets and, frankly, less talent the chance to perform on the world stage. That's right. I agree. Pretty cool. Uh, Mo says, I think I've mentioned this before, but I haven't missed an election, local or federal, since I first voted in 1980. No matter where I was stationed, I was always able to get a ballot and vote. Something I did notice, I may have, have mentioned this last week, but I, I did catch a 
a, a social media post from Senator Chris McDaniel, candidate for lieutenant governor, and he's calling for elections and voting to only be available on election day, and uh, and further that it would be all paper ballots. I found that um, a bit intriguing that he would make uh, take such a position, and I, I just wonder, and of course we'll talk to him about that when we get him on the program, how would that work with respect to yeah, I'll, I'll read it verbatim. This is on the Senator Chris McDaniel Facebook page, June 13th. Voting should be done in person, period. Paper ballots, period. On Election Day, period. So I just wonder how would we accommodate folks like Mose who might be serving in the U.S. military and stationed away from the state of Mississippi but still vote in Mississippi, still have their permanent residence in Mississippi, and then you have the infirmed population simply cannot physically go to a poll. I know I've voted a couple of times absentee because of business conflicts, and I certainly could have rescheduled those. Well, actually, one of them I absolutely could not. One I possibly could have, but, you know, I found it fairly easy and straightforward to go to the county office and just vote absentee, go through that process. It's pretty painless, fast. The uh, the staff there were very accommodating. Once again, in the wild world of politics, you have the left and the right with their own ideas, and in reality, it would be better for everyone pretty much smack dab in the middle. I think that's Because the idea. right is all about paper ballots, only one day, only certain time, and the left is well, let's just let everybody vote when they feel like it, and they can just mail it in or maybe even shoot us a text and let us know how you want to vote, and we'll vote for you, like that kind of craziness. Yeah. Whereas in reality, you do need the ability to vote on a day that is not election day, but also in reality, you you don't have to just have paper ballots. You don't have to allow voting after the election day. You don't have to allow all these this red meat political crap when in in truth, the way it's set up, in Mississippi at least, is pretty much the gold standard. You have absentee ballots. You don't have ballot harvesting. You have an election day. I don't really see what there is to complain about in Mississippi. Like, yeah, there are other states that have really screwed it up. So let's clarify. In Mississippi, I think you're right, we have absentee voting, but it requires an excuse. Correct. In some states, it doesn't. It's no excuse, absentee vote. So I would agree with you. Okay, you can't be here and you can't get to the polls, let's put it that way, on Election Day. We had someone, you saw it, text us last week that is a healthcare professional. And, I mean, you can't leave. When you're in a, a, a healthcare setting, you can't just leave say, I'm going to vote. You can't even leave, like, the building to go to lunch or do anything else because of your responsibilities. And often those shifts or 11 and 12 hours. They work odd shifts, you know, a couple on and then a couple of days off sort of deal. And so I get that. You you just simply cannot get to the poll. Well, I, I don't want to leave those people out. They're, just, they're working. They're doing their job. It's just an example. And there are numerous others, which is I agree with you. I think we have a very good system in Mississippi that's 
a combination of balance. It, it accommodates those who truly can't get to the poll on Election Day, such as members of our military. Geez, it wouldn't be fair to leave them out, not to accommodate them. So, And I'll ask the senator what he means by this when we talk to him as we approach the election. I'm sure we will. Last Thursday on the 5, Jessica, this is Karen in Oxford on the ceasefire tax line. Jessica Tarlov, who is the liberal contributor on the panel, was complaining that she was tired of paying high taxes in New York and California to pay for southern states like Alabama, Mississippi, Kentucky, and Arkansas who don't pay their fair share in taxes. She said Republican southern states get paid for by the Democrat northern states, and she was tired of paying for them. Do you know what she is talking about? Is she correct? I do know what she's talking about, and you you mischaracterized it a bit there, Karen. And here's what she's talking about is the ratio of federal taxes paid to federal funds received, or vice versa, is usually how it's how it's presented. The federal funds received into a state compared to federal taxes sent to the Treasury. And so what she's saying is it's absolutely true and it's something I've talked about on this program that should that should have true. Well it's it's true in that the states um, which are red for the most part Okay, they do have the highest ratio of money coming in uh, to the to the state from the federal government versus money going out, and it is the large deep blue states who have the smallest ratio. They just have more wealth. But it would only be holy truth if we had a balanced budget. Well, yeah, sure, because what we're what we're receiving is just lapping onto the debt. So it's, I mean, when she says. We need to pay our fair share. The flaw in that argument, honestly, is that it is uh, unconstitutional to tax federal taxation. has to be across the board in all 50 states. So she's not talking about state taxes, state income taxation, or sales taxes, or other forms of state and local taxes. She's talking specifically about federal taxes. This is a common um, argument from the left that, hey, it is the deep blue states that do pay most of the federal income taxes. It's the deep red states that receive more than they pay in at a greater rate, at a greater clip. Mississippi, unfortunately, we have the highest ratio of all 50 states because we're the poorest state of money we receive from the federal government versus money we send. It's about $12 billion a year just to fund general fund activities in the state of Mississippi. And most of that, Medicaid. It's Medicaid. Why do we have so many people on Medicaid? Because we have the poor state. It's just simple as that. And that's without expanding. You could bump that up another billion if we expanded Medicaid to include the able-bodied adults as a Medicaid coverage group. We're stepping aside for a break right here. We're coming right back with the final segment on Midday. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
when he heard his first Beatles song. Love me do, I think it wasn't from there, it didn't take him long. Got himself a guitar, used to play every night. Welcome back, everyone. Final segment of Middays on this Monday, kicking off a big new week. Brand new week, I should say. Uh, ben from Madison says the RNC is pushing more Republicans to take advantage of early voting. They felt burned the last few years since Dems really stack up their early votes. And the problem there, Ben, is that they don't vote early, and then Election Day rolls around, and something comes up, and they don't get to the polls, thus they don't vote at all. And we had uh, Ronna McDaniel on the program, right, Rhino, about a month ago, and she talked about that. Bank the Vote, I think, is the program that the RNC has uh, has created for that purpose. To Look, if you can't be there, if you think there's a possibility you can't get to the polls on Election Day, please go out and vote early. We allow that. It feels kind of half-hearted from the RNC because, yeah, let's come up with our own program instead of connecting with the three or four grassroots organizations or conservative activists that have been trying to get this ball rolling for years now. I agree. A friend also texted me to remind that if you're over 65 in Mississippi, that, that does qualify you for absentee voting. You don't have to have any other reason other than your age. So that is true. Appreciate that. Let's see, uh, there was something else. Yeah, Johnny McComb says a Little League World Series is actually a World Series. That's true. Very true. Williamsport, Pennsylvania, been going on for a very long time. Let's see, taxes funneled to the south. What the bill, let's see, what are you talking about here? I'm trying to find. Isn't that the complaint from the left about taxes flowing to the south, what they want, share the wealth? No, I think all they're trying to say is that while we conservatives in, in states run by Republicans that are, are red, while we complain about federal spending, we do, and we complain about uh, taxation, high taxation, we do, we also benefit from the taxes paid in the other states. I agree, and I think it is a problem, and that's why I pointed out I would really like to see our state leaders focus on uh, weaning our state off of its dependency. We are a, a state, much like we have people denounce uh, dependency on government from an individual perspective, so-called welfare dependency and government dependency. Unfortunately, the state of Mississippi is a dependent on the federal government. And now, all states receive Medicaid funding, all participate in the program, and that typically is the biggest uh, category of federal dollars a state receives. But states that uh, have much higher household and per capita incomes uh, pay more taxes, and they actually receive less back from the federal government than they send. They're on the other side of that ratio. We, unfortunately, are at about three to one. We have the highest ratio and it is. And so how do you fix that? You grow the economy. That's how you fix it. That's how you fix almost everything in our state. But what I was pointing out is it's disingenuous to say that the blue states fund the red states when a big chunk of the funding just comes from debt, which everybody owes. Yeah, I mean, that that's exactly right. We're all taxed at the same level. 
and we'd all send enough to the federal government to cover how much the federal government spends. I'm not suggesting let's raise taxes, which is what Joe Biden and the Democrats want to do. But we all know they wouldn't like magically reduce spending or curb spending, or more importantly, they wouldn't like, oh, we got more revenue coming in because we raised taxes. Wow, it looks like that closed the deficit, and we're starting to maybe address our our runaway debt. They wouldn't do that. they just keep spending more. That's how it works. They, they just they're they're not content to see that figure go down. That's not what they want to do. They just they've got more ideas on more programs. Every time Joe talks about all his tax increase proposals, he always, of course, uh, succeeds that by talking about his spending proposals. It's not like oh, send us more money, taxpayers, and we're gonna. We're going to curb the deficit. We're going to close the deficit and start paying down on debt. No, there's no plan to do that whatsoever. There's not a nickel they can't spend. They will spend not only the nickels they got, they'll go into debt to spend the nickels they don't. That's just the truth. So that's where that's coming from. Uh, Let's see here. There's a couple other things. I was a permanent absentee voter while I lived in California. It was pretty nice, says Rhett in Ridgeland. But then again, I'm kind of lazy. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I get it. And I honestly, I, th- I agree with Rhino. I think that our system is probably the, the uh, most logical, the most reasonable of all those with respect to uh, voting, uh, I'm not sure I could agree with, hey, we can only vote on election day and it all has to be paper ballots. Not sure. At the at the um, precinct. We're out of time here today. It's Ricky Matthews next with Super Talk Outdoors back in the Element Well studio tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.